country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hi everyone, this is Jackie Baker. After a long while, coming to you from Murdoch University, which stands on the unceded land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. Indonesia has sadly been the site of many mass atrocities and mass deaths, but getting to the bottom of who did what and when is fraught with challenges. How many people died and were injured in an event? Who was responsible? Who knew? Who was in authority? Was it all intended or did things get out of hand? Truth can be slippery, but the complex and chaotic nature of these kinds of events make them shrouded in mystery. And yet as long as these events are hidden, wrongdoing will continue to go unpunished. Victims will stay unheard and will never learn from our collective mistakes. Today I'm here with writer and law student Asia Lewin. Have I just said that right? No. Aisha. Aisha. Aisha Llewellyn. Llewellyn. Oh, you're Welsh. Yeah, half Welsh. Okay. <laughs> Today I'm here with writer and law student Aisha Lewin. No, I didn't Llewellyn. say Lewin. Llewellyn. Llewellyn. Today I'm here with writer and law student Asia Llewellyn. She's a former diplomat and has a true crime newsletter and podcast called Hukum. Aisha is currently completing her second BA in Indonesian law at a North Sumatran university. In her career, Aisha has closely followed and reported on two major events in which human rights were violated, most recently in Kanjuruan, where 135 people died last October when police fired tear gas into an overcrowded football stadium. But her long-term work has been invested in examining the mass atrocities committed in Aceh by the Indonesian military, but aided and abetted by ExxonMobil, who had charge of the gas fields up there, the ownership of which triggered Aceh's 30-year-long secessionist movement. We're going to be hearing about Aceh and Kanjuruan and true crime um, in today's Talking Indonesia. Welcome to Talking Indonesia, Aisha. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's always a bit strange, as I was just saying to you earlier, because usually I'm the one asking the questions. Well, so it's always odd. Yes, well, buckle in, because it's going to be <laughs> a bumpy ride. Great start. Yes. All right. Let's start with Aceh. And I understand you came to this case when villagers who lived around the Arun gas fields launched a legal battle with ExxonMobil. Can you tell me a bit about the villagers you met and why they chose to take on this sort of Goliath fossil fuel company um, and what they hoped to get out of it? Yes. Well, the Oh gosh, it's such a big story. I'm going to try and just tell it as simply as possible because there's so much to it. But essentially, this was a lawsuit that was filed back in July 2001. And so it's a really, uh, it was a really unusual case because it happened here in Indonesia, but the Indonesian villagers took ExxonMobil to court in the United States in the District Court of Columbia um, in Washington, D.C. So but essentially what happened was ExxonMobil was here in Indonesia in Aceh and it was taking the oil and gas from a place called Aranfield that you mentioned. And at that time, Aceh was in the middle of a civil conflict where it was fighting between the Free Aceh Movement and the Indonesian army. And so ExxonMobil was worried that there would be a security threat to its American staff, essentially. So they brought in security guards. 
But because this was a place where it was in the middle of a civil conflict, they couldn't just find any security guards. So what they did is they hired members of the Indonesian military who were already stationed in Aceh as part of this kind of military operation to uh, quell this separatist movement in Aceh. They hired them as security guards, kind of moonlighting as security guards at Aaron Field. Obviously, because it was a time of great conflict, these security guards, who were obviously members of the military, went out into local villages and allegedly, because the case never came to court, allegedly tortured the villagers uh, in and around Aaronfield while they were on the clock and under contract to ExxonMobil. So that's where the kind of legal crux of the case comes from, because if they were working for ExxonMobil at the time, then there's an argument that ExxonMobil was legally responsible for the torture and the kidnappings and the sexual assaults that happened my, at that time. My understanding is also that Exxon provided some of the infrastructure and equipment that the military also used to harm these villages. Is that true? Uh, well, kind of, yes. So the Aaron Field had a number of different kind of outposts and different buildings. And so some of the human rights abuses were committed essentially on ExxonMobil's property. Um, so they would go out into local villages. The military would go out into these uh, villages and uh, they used to perform what were called sweeping raids where they were ostensibly looking for terrorists or separatists or however, you know, these rebel factions in Aceh, however you want to term it, they would go out into the villages, do these sweeping raids, and then bring back suspected separatists onto um, ExxonMobil's land and torture them there to get them to confess and things like that. So it's not exactly that ExxonMobil provided the infrastructure, but their infrastructure was used. Again, as I said, this case never went to court. So it settled out of court this year. So it's still a little bit difficult to kind of talk about it in um, in uh, absolute terms. And so how did you come to this case and why has it occupied so much of your reporting? Like why was this a case that uh, you followed so closely? I came to the case, I don't even remember how. I think I was searching for, I wanted to do something that had a link to the United States, I think. I don't even remember why, but I was just looking for um some news that kind of fed back to the United States. And I came across the case. This was years ago. And I thought, oh, I wondered, I wonder what ever happened with that. You know, I wonder what the outcome was. And then when I read a little bit more, I realized that the case was still ongoing, which seemed crazy to me because it had been filed in 2001. And it took, well, it was only settled this year. So it was just crazy that this, to me, that this case had gone on for over 20 years and I couldn't understand why. And so I went to Aceh and it took me quite a long time, a few years, to meet the plaintiffs because their identities were always sealed in the court documents. Even now, um, we don't, you don't know um, who they are. They're referred to as um, John Doe's. And so their, their names have never come out. So it took me a while to find them. It took me about over a year, I think, to find them. And then um, and then the case just was kept going on. So I just had to keep following it until it settled this year. Why did these villagers decide to specifically take ExxonMobil to court? Where did they get this idea from? And how did they mobilise the resources they needed to take this case to court 
up, you know, it's particularly in the right. US. Well, it's a, again kind of a complicated story. So there was a lawyer in the United States called Terry Terence Collinsworth. He had done and still does a lot of work with uh, labor groups and things like that, and labor law and labor rights. And he somehow, through his network, had heard about human rights abuses in Aceh. And so he came over to Aceh in the uh, 2000s, early 2000s, and met with the villagers and kind of tried to get the story from them and then thought, okay, I think that there's probably a case here. He chose 11 plaintiffs who he thought had kind of strong a strong case and strong grounds to take on ExxonMobil and then they sued them in the United States because um, ExxonMobil is based there. And so they were using, in the beginning, a piece of legislation called the Alien Tort Statute where you can a company could be held liable for human rights abuses that have happened somewhere else. And so that's the kind of the legal mechanism that they used in the beginning. And then they were able to take them to court. Well, they were able to file a case in the United States, but as I said, it never went to court. And so the villagers, you know, it was really Terry Collinsworth who was instrumental in going to Aceh and kind of um, putting the case together. And then they, you know, the villagers decided that they thought that it was appropriate that ExxonMobil should you know, um, pay reparations or, you know, be held responsible for what they did. Because, I mean, when, as well, I'm sort of talking quite vaguely about the what happened, like the torture and things like that. But, you know, if you read the court documents and having spoken to them, I mean, you know, they alleged that they were taken and beaten and, you know, they wanted, the military wanted them to confess to being separatists um, who were, you know, trying to kill members of the military in Aceh. Um, and they just did awful things. I mean, one of the men, this really sticks in my mind is that one of the plaintiffs, they carved, they allegedly <laughs> carved the words GAM into his back. So GAM is the free Aceh movement with a bayonet. Um back in the early 2000s. And I remember the first time he took off his shirt to show me and you could still see it carved into his skin all these years later. Um, and another one of the plaintiffs who I spoke to for years, you know, telling me that he had been taken and um, blindfolded and had to, they said, you know, if you don't confess, um, we're going to kill you. And made him put his hands out and he said I could just feel something under my hands and I didn't know what it was and it was kind of slippery and then he realized that he they'd taken him to a, a place where there were human skulls so sort of like a mass grave with all these human skulls and he had been touching them um, but he couldn't see it because he was blindfolded um, and they were saying we're going to add your head to the pile we're going to cut your head off and add it to the pile here if you don't tell us what we need to know when I say torture this is kind of what I mean and as I said, there were eleven plaintiffs, so there was all, there were all, including women who alleged that they were alleged that they were sexually assaulted. So I mean, it was a really brutal and violent case that really needed it really needed to go to court or to be tried somewhere. So you know, it was amazing that they were able to do it in the United States, even though it took over twenty years in the end. Can you tell me what did it do to the villagers to have to wait so long? for their day in court, which ultimately never came. I think they lost a lot of faith in the legal process in the United States. I think they thought that there was some trickery afoot, and I don't think there is any suggestion that there was, but I think they couldn't understand how it 
could be taking so long. And I think that that's fair. I mean, I think it's just, I don't know how you feel about this, Jackie, but I think it's outrageous that anyone should have to wait 20, more than 20 years for justice. Like justice delayed is justice denied. You know, it shouldn't take that long for it to go through the system. I mean, this case was particularly difficult. One of the things that happened is that the judge on the case died of something completely unrelated to the case. So he died and then they had to get a new judge and then get him up to speed on the case. So that was really unusual and really unfortunate and that took some time. Um, But the other thing that happened was that ExxonMobil, this is not unusual. These companies like this tend to dig in initially because admitting liability would be worse than the money. Like it's not about the money, right? They don't need the money. They have pots and pots of money but that you know they don't want to admit liability because they think probably quite rightly that you know people will come out of the woodwork and then they'll have all these cases all over the world of you know horrible human rights abuses that they've committed so ExxonMobil really dug in and for years kind of it literally litigated everything in the case so they argued about everything they argued about jurisdiction they said it shouldn't be tried in the United States we should be tried in Indonesia and literally every legal argument they could think of. And it was only last year that they finally ruled that it could go to court. And and literally on the eve of the trial this year, it was meant to go to trial in May, literally just before that, they finally settled. So I think the villagers felt that they couldn't understand why it was taking so long. I think they felt that it was, they were never going to get any kind of justice. As the court date got closer, they got quite, I think they would have, wanted a day in court but I think they're also happy to have escaped that as well because I think it's a lot to have to go to the United States and stand up in court and talk about this in a you know country that you don't know and with interpreters obviously because they can't speak English so I think that they were pleased to have escaped going to court and pleased that it settled but it I think it's just crazy that it took so long it shouldn't have it shouldn't people shouldn't have to wait over 20 years for justice yeah, I completely agree. Um, I mean, what does that – you're a law student and you wrestle with these problems all the time, right? Like what does that settlement tell you about justice for mass atrocities, um, even in context where it's so clear, right, that this has occurred? I mean, look, the, it's difficult because I'm obviously, you know, close to the plaintiffs. I've known them for years. They were obviously very happy with the settlement and are happy it's over. And like I said, as as it got closer to the court date, they were getting more and more jittery about having to stand up in court, which is how many people feel and totally understandable. But I mean, I so I think for them, it was, you know, a success story after 22 years. But if we look at it with you know, a, a cooler head removed from the situation, I would say that it's, is it justice? I mean, you know, part of the settlement with ExxonMobil was that they said, you know, we admit no liability in the case. And so it's another case really where, you know, one of these big companies has sort of been able to wriggle out of responsibility for what they did by throwing money and a settlement at the problem and, you know, um, making people sign NDAs. So, I mean, I, you know, justice in this case, it depends who you are and how you look at it, whether justice was, you know, whether justice was served or not. Yeah, I can, I can understand it probably feels like a bitter pill. 
Let's turn now to Kanjuruan because I understand you've just come back from Malang, in fact, where last year we saw over 135 people die and I think up to 500 or plus injured when police fired tear gas into an overcrowded football stadium. And this event was, you know, really widely reported around the world and there was a lot of attention at the time, but that attention has completely dissipated and very few can talk to us about the aftermath of Kanjuruan. How was it when you went to the city? What was the the feeling in the city? Oh, it was awful, Jackie. It was worse than I anticipated, I have to be honest. I hadn't, I don't know what I was expecting, but it's, um, uh, Malang is not, I'd never been there before, but Malang is not a happy place. Like, it's just a place where you just can't escape this feeling. It's like a black cloud over the city. I know that's kind of a cliche, but it's just like this this heaviness. You just feel this heavy energy all over the city. And you. it's impossible to forget what happened there. You see banners with people's faces on them everywhere. And there's graffiti everywhere about the police. And I think that people are still just, just so shocked. I think people just cannot believe in Malang that this happened and that, you know, we're coming up to the first year anniversary on the 1st of October. You know, justice has been elusive, quite elusive in this case. And I think people are still just shocked that it happened and shocked that a year on we haven't really come that far. You obviously spoke to a whole range of different people, um, including victims, family members of the victims. What did what did they want from Kanjuruan? How would this be resolved for them? Yeah. I, I feel like resolved is such a poor word. Yeah, how no, could justice be served for them? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've talked to so many of the families. I think it differs from family to family. You know, some people feel like financial compensation is actually the most useful, practical thing for them. And that's you know, their right to feel that way. Some people wanted longer sentences for some of the people who were involved. So just to kind of unpack that, so there were five people charged in this case, two civilians who were match organisers and who were sentenced for not having done a proper risk assessment of the stadium and then three police officers who were also charged with negligence for giving the orders to fire the tear gas onto the pitch and into the stands and they got different sentences but between about I think it was a year to two years or two and a half sorry a year to two and a half years so very very low sentences and so the families told me that you know some of them openly said that they wanted the death penalty and that they thought that the officers and the two civilians should have been charged with murder um, under article 338 and 340 of Indonesia's criminal code. I personally don't actually agree with that, with a murder charge. And I could explain if you need, if you need me to why, but, um, you know, some of the families thought that negligence was not the right um, crime to charge them with. They definitely wanted longer sentences, more robust sentences. And, you know, some of the families also thought that, you know, more people should have been charged, that kind of five people, you know, that there were more people responsible than just these five um, who were tried in court. But it's also important to say that there are other cases still going on in the Kanjuran case, civil cases that are going through the court in Malang. So that will be for financial compensation. So the criminal 
cases in Surabaya have concluded, but we also now have these civil cases going on. So it's kind of, it is still ongoing as well. So do people feel that justice is pending? No, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) No, I wouldn't say that. I think that's too optimistic. I think that they would say that justice has not been served well in the criminal cases and that, you know, the civil cases could, I suppose, make things easier if they were to pay out large amounts of financial compensation. You know, the ch- I mean, when was the chance to get Kanjuruan right? I guess in charging the right people and charging them with the right things, that was the time to kind of set, you know, set everything right again and give them, you know, robust sentences for their parts you know, for the parts that they played that night in giving the orders to fire tear gas and things like that. But, um, I mean, that isn't, that isn't what happened. Right. It got, I mean, that went through a, went really quickly through a closed court. I'm imagining that those victims were not, were not able to attend that court. Is that correct? Is it, no. Well, so it was a kind of partially closed court. It was not a televised court, but members of the media, some members of the media and some families could attend in person so it wasn't a fully closed court and some of the people who I spoke to also were witnesses in the trial and so they were able to they I mean they were witnesses but then they also were able to watch the proceedings um but it wasn't televised in the way that other big cases are like I know you've talked a lot about the Ferdi Sambo case we watch that every day that was live streamed (laughs) on Indonesian TV I mean many cases are live streamed and you just can watch the entire trial this one was deliberately uh, closed and it was also moved which is important it didn't take place in Malang district court it was moved to neighboring Surabaya because they were worried about you know street demonstrations and clashes um, if you know, it was felt that the mood in Malang was too, um, you know, kind of at a fever pitch at that point because people were, you know, marching in the streets demanding justice. So they moved it to a different court. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- there were a lot of things around that case, around moving it, around making it so closed and difficult for the media to access that meant that people were naturally suspicious of it from the start. Um, and also, it's important to say, when I said that there were five people charged, of the three police officers, two were originally acquitted, right. which just kind of caught everyone by surprise. <laughs> I don't know if you remember when that happened. I think I told you yeah, um, yeah. That, that they'd been acquitted. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Um, but then that was overturned um, by the Supreme Court on appeal. So they've now been sent back to jail. But but very short sentences, I think, under 18 months. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah two, two and a half years. Right. Um, and then this, and for others, a year, a year and a half, things like that. So, yeah, the sentences are definitely not robust, I would say. I think they could have obviously been higher. I think people would have responded more positively to that and probably been more... I think you would have felt like there was more of a sense of justice. I mean, the, I mean, a year and two years is really, really low in in any for any crime. So yeah, I mean, I guess I wonder, like, what form does justice take with these mass atrocities? I guess what strikes me always is the paucity of the criminal justice system in service servicing that need for a community. When you think about these deep scars, whether it be on the the Aron gas fields or you know in Malang. And one thing I think that does provide some avenue for healing is truth. 
I wonder if the people of Malang feel that the truth of this event is out there, is known, is agreed upon. Well, I mean, it was all live streamed when it happened, which is incredible, right? Which is incredible because you had this football match that, you know, all these thousands of people were watching. And then, you know, some of the fans, I mean, it's important to say that how it started, which was that some of the supporters went down onto the field and were hugging and in some cases hitting the players on the field. It was the first time in 23 years that Arema, Malang's local club, had lost a match to um, its to Persebaya, Surabaya, so its kind of arch rival neighbor neighbors in neighboring Surabaya. So you know the emotions were very high. The police came onto the pitch. I think people didn't know that they had been armed with tear gas because that is in contravention of FIFA's uh, rules, which prohibit it being fired in stadiums. But they had it on them and they fired it. Um, according to reports, as many as 45 shots of tear gas in a very short space of time. And um, and we saw it all. That's what's so crazy to me about this case. We saw it all because people immediately took out their mobile phones and they started filming it. People were live streaming it on Facebook, on Instagram. I mean, we we it was all, it was everywhere immediately. And to go back to the case in Surabaya, when the two police officers were acquitted, the judge said um, that, they didn't fire, you know, no one fired any tear gas into the stands. And we saw the pictures of them standing there firing the tear gas up. You know, there's pictures of tear gas guns being pointed up into the stands and fired because as well, they had all these press photographers on the pitch who were there to cover the match. And so they all just sort of started taking pictures from the pitch of the chaos. Like it's incredible to me about Kanjuruan that we've never had like a more televised mm mass tragedy. I agree. But then I think truth is slippery because, you know, yes, we saw it, but then there is this muddying of the waters. No, they, uh, these people died in the crush. They didn't die because of the tear gas. I mean, even if you look at the Wikipedia site, I was stunned. And a lot of the reporting, it's about the crush and this kind of unclear causal line. And so that regard, you shouldn't blame the police and they're not criminally, you know, not, they can't be held criminally responsible. So I think it's like this atrocity that occurs in in the brightest daylight and yet there's still a lot of questions about who did it, who was responsible, was it intended? Yes, and I mean, I think that that's, I think that those are fair questions as well. I mean, I what you just said about was it intended is a big one for me because, Going back to saying, you know, the families would like the death penalty. They thought people had been charged with murder. I mean, that's one of the things that I would respectfully disagree with because, you know, I think it's quite clear that they, the police that night didn't intend for what happened to happen. You know, they didn't intend, didn't go there to kill 135 people. And so I think that that is a part of it. Negligence is absolutely the right thing for them to have been charged with. I think they were extremely negligent. But then you also, you know, both this case, Kanjuruan and ExxonMobil, the ExxonMobil case that we just talked about, have that parallel of who is responsible, who gave the orders, you know, like in the Exxon case, who was giving the orders to go if and torture people 
to find out if they were separatists, if that's what occurred. You know, was it the military? Was it people in ExxonMobil? Did people at ExxonMobil know? If they didn't know, should they have known? You know, if they had this master-servant relationship of, you know, the military working for them, then should they be the ones who are ultimately responsible? And I think it's the same in Malang as well, you know. You had all these kind of cooks in the kitchen with, you know, the, the stadium manager, you had people from the club, um, Arema, you had the police, but also within the police, we had, you know, national police, Bremob, um, which is like a branch of the national police. You know, you, you've got all of these different people who ultimately is responsible for Kanjuru and is a very, very difficult question. You know, who's the one who said, you know, and even on the pitch, we can't get to, well, who exactly gave the orders to fire? And is it the people who fired the tear gases fault? Um, or is it the people who gave the orders? Is it the person back at the, you know, police station who said, who said, you know, strap on the tear gas, lads, off you go in contravention, knowing that that was a contravention of FIFA's rules? You know, I'm, I'm obviously a, a huge advocate for the justice system, including Indonesia's justice system. I probably would say that as a law student, but I have a great faith in Indonesia's um, legal system, which I think is much less muddied and corrupt and incompetent than people think because it has a lot of stigma. Um, so I think the legal system in Indonesia, is, in Indonesia is mostly good. But I think in this case, it's a complicated case to prosecute. And, you know, I don't, I'm not sure they got it quite right in this case. All right. As a massive um, true crime fan, I can't let you go without asking you about your true crime podcast, Hukum. Um, True crime obviously has a, like a really dirty reputation, which is why admitting to listening or being a massive fan of it online is never a good thing. But I just, um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, you've been watching true crime in Indonesia, which is a whole different context for many, many years. And what what do you understand about Indonesian society by looking through the lens of these true crime cases you've been following? Um well, it, wow, it's I mean, that's such a big question. What have I learned about Indonesia through true crime? So many things, but I think that it's, I mean, oh, so many things I could talk about. I think one of them is that, you know, true crime in Indonesia can be distinct, but also not. Um, it, it, in many ways, we see patterns that we see all over the world. So one would be that, you know, like um, minorities are just proportionately um, affected by crime. Women are disproportionately affected by crime. So a lot of what I see in the true crime sphere is, I, I think, similar than you, similar patterns anyway, that you would see in other places. But some of it is just kind of <laughs> bonkers and just off the wall and just distinctly Indonesian. So, I mean, we were talking about this before, lots of um, shaman. A lot of shame and stories. You've got to tell us the shame and stories. Well, there's so many shame and stories. I could tell many shame and stories. I mean, there's always a shame involved. It seems somewhere like Indonesia is famous for its dukun, uh, these kind of shame and witch doctor figures. And they get involved in a lot of true crime. A lot of true crime. And there's actually been quite a few um, shaman serial killers where you know, people go to them for, for kind of sort of spiritual guidance. Um, shaman in Indonesia sort of advertise their services as kind of like they can help you, you know, rekindle lost love 
or find lost items or make more money or heal wounds that you didn't know you had or you like lift a generational curse off you and all these things so they offer these kind of spiritual services and you know many people in indonesia have a deep belief in the in shaman in these token even now and so um it's a very lucrative profession but what we've seen is you know, patterns of shaman advertising their services people go to them and then they murder them to get more money from them and like empty their bank accounts and steal all their gold jewelry and things like that there's actually a shaman well indonesia's worst serial killer that i talked about on my podcast one of the world's worst serial killers ever um was actually here in Medan, well, in Binjay, just down the road from me, about 45 minutes from where I am. So, um, yeah, and he did the same thing, um, robbed primarily, well, all women um, who came to see him, you know, with stories of, you know, they wanted to stop fighting with their boyfriends or, you know, uh, get married soon or something like that. And then um, he would take them out into a sugarcane plantation and murder them. So that's a very specific, the, the shaman serial killers definitely is um, a very uniquely Indonesian true crime story that we've seen across different parts of the country. Yeah. So that kind of crime follows the patterns of social marginalization. Um, it's interesting in the shaming cases because I would equate those with actually another pattern that we see in um, true crime in the world, which is actually that, that quite a few serial killers, serial killer cases are people who are caregivers. So we see people in the caring professions like nurses, for example. We've actually just had a case of... Uh, oh, my God. Do Lucy not, Lucy, let, let be. me this. Do <laughs> <laughs> not, Lucy, let me in this podcast. <laughs> well, it's true that we see... Um, especially in, in terms of women, um, women working in caring professions, so nurses um, committing serial killings or crimes because, you know, they have opportunity to do so and things like that. So because it's interesting when you think about it that all of the victims, the serial killers' victims, were people with problems, right? They were coming to him. Um, if we take the case here of Ahmed Zaraji, these were all women who were coming to him with problems, you know, with some kind of issue in their life that they needed him to fix. So they were people who were already vulnerable before they even got there and who really kind of needed him. So it was this perfect, I think, sort of environment for to commit this kind of crime. And also, you know, a lot of these women, and this is something that we see in other places as well, were, you know, young women from low socioeconomic backgrounds who, you know, no one thought to look for. And quite a lot of families thought that, you know, when their loved ones didn't come home, they thought, well, they've run away to the big city to get a job and things like that. Um, because how could, you know, it was like 45 minutes, women, you know, went missing. I mean, it's a huge number of victims that no one kind of noticed. But again, I mean, that's a pattern we see a lot that, you know, Serial killings often happen because they their victims are people that people don't look for. Except that in these cases, instead of, in these cases, who's investigating? I mean, you said there's sort of forty five victims, young women who presumably not all of those families neglected their loved ones, and they went to the police asking for those young women to be identified or found what happened, what kinds of responses did the police come back with in these cases? 
those shaming cases are difficult as well because there's a lot of stigma that I think still comes from, as I said, it's women who are going with a problem, right? So they've had a fight with their husband, for example. So they're not going to tell their husband or probably people around them that they're going to see a shaman so people don't know where they are. But in a recent um, shaman serial killing case, so this is a different shaman serial killer, okay? Let's not get our... Let's not get our serial killers mixed up. This is a different serial killing case in Java. Um, That case was actually cracked open because a guy went to see him to um, do a sort of spell that would help to improve his wealth. And so he actually said to his son, I guess knowing that shaman have a reputation for killings, said to his son, if I don't come back tonight, um, this is where I am. And I he sent like his GPS coordinates and like Google maps of where he was going to be and said, you know, if I don't come back tomorrow, then you need to go to the police. He got, he was murdered. Um, and so the family then kind of took everything that he'd given them to the police. So this poor guy literally had to solve his own murder in order for the police to take action. But we, in the, um, UK or the US, for example, you don't see serial killers the way that you used to. Um, And the rise of DNA and forensics is a big reason for that. But also people's digital footprints and online footprints make it harder for people to kill and kill and kill again before they're caught. Um, But I would suggest that because of issues, as you've just rightly said, around investigations and police capabilities to investigate cases, Indonesia is still quite a breeding ground for serial serial killers (laughs) (laughs) oh my god come and visit us so like generally safe except for all the natural disasters and the shamanic killings well that's a great note to end on (laughs) it's a great note to end on (laughs) thanks to um aisha lulan Close enough, Llewellyn. Thanks to Aisha Llewellyn for generously sharing her insights. And you can catch Aisha saying her name properly on her True Crime newsletter and podcast on her Substack, Hukum. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight, but you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Jackie Baker. Bye for now. Thank you.